Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. Stacy Aslan. Dr. Aslan graduated from LACC in 1988. He's a diplomate and he joined the GCSS Board of Directors in 2019. He practices in Huntington, New York. I've known Stacy for a while now and students always love him because he's straightforward, no nonsense, and he doesn't mince words. Exactly what you would expect from a good New Yorker. Today he's joining me so we can answer some listener questions from our mailbox. So without any further ado, Dr. Stacy Aslan. Hello, Dr. Aslan. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically, how you got into Gonstead chiropractic? Sure. Um, well, when I was younger, I had a tremendous amount of stomach issues. Um, I think I was in fourth grade and I was taking Donatol, which I think is an antispasmatic, um, and having my Lanta with my school lunch. Um, and, uh, of course I was told to be, to, to drink milk, to coat my stomach. We know how intelligent that was. Um, especially for, for a Jewish kid, that's probably lactose intolerant. Anyway, um, it, it, nothing really helped. I had stomach problems, basically my whole high school career, junior high, you know, elementary, whatever. And, um, so ironically, I was thinking of becoming a gastroenterologist. Uh, my house, you couldn't go to college and figure it out. You had to know before you signed up what you planned on studying. So I had to pick something. So I was going to become a gastroenterologist. And then one of my friends said, you should talk to my brother's friend. He's in chiropractic college. And I'm like, sure. Okay. And then I, I figured, you know, chiropractors, they're the rich man's doctor, you know, take care of, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I had this, this thought that it was kind of like, Wealthy people who had a, an annoying back problem, um, but that's just, that's I don't know where that came from, but that's what I thought. So anyway, it was the rich man's doctor, um, and I went to talk to my 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 buddy's friend, uh, brother's friend, and we sat down, and he said, "Well, what do you know about chiropractic?" And I said, "It's the rich man's doctor," and he said, "Well, not really." Um, so he started explaining to me, and 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 he used the example of a bad stomach, even though he had no idea that I had stomach issues and uh, digestive issues. And he said, so the brain controls the entire body and it sends messages down the spinal cord, out the nerves to all the glands, organs, and muscles. And if the bones misalign and it pinches the nerve and let's say that nerves go to your stomach, what do you think will happen to the stomach? And I said, it won't hurt right. He goes, it won't, it won't work right. And he said, exactly. That's what chiropractors do. They find where that interference is. And then we go and we take that bone off that nerve. And then what do you think will happen? I go, well, I guess the stomach will start working because it's getting all the information from the brain. He goes, exactly. And that's what chiropractors do. And I'm like, that's it. So I got sold on chiropractic, not by ever going to one, not by, you know, most, you know, you hear about people who are injured my back and they save me and nobody else could help me. For me, it was just based on the principle, um, not the philosophical principle, but the neurological principle of brain controlling body and, and sending messages down the cord to the organs and back. And I think that's kind of what saved me from going down that, I say saved, um, because I think that chiropractors that don't have a strong philosophy cannot survive. And if you want to be a medical doctor or you want to be a glorified physical therapist, you're going to have a really hard time making it in this profession. So honestly, I never, even though I'm a philosophical quote unquote chiropractic, I always kind of think of myself as a mechanistic straight chiropractor because I just see it as brain controlling body and body controlling brain. I don't necessarily... See, you know, I mean, yes, I understand innate intelligence and the wisdom of the body and the power in the body and all that. But to me, it's still a little bit more mechanical than that. Um, and I guess this principle was instilled in me. And I never thought about ultrasound. I went to LACC, by the way, which is about as close to medical school as you could go um, at the time. And it was 30 years ago. And um, 
but it never made sense to me of doing ultrasound and muscle stim and diathermy and because that didn't get bones off nerves to let the body heal. So it wasn't a matter of philosophical straight thinking. It was just, well, a chiropractor gets bones off nerves so the body can heal and function. And that's our job. And if it doesn't work, well, then that person should be somewhere else, not in our office. Um, and that was always my, my philosophy of chiropractic. And then how I got into Gonstead was pretty simple. Um, I guess a lot of your listeners probably know who Dr. Greg Plogger is, um, you know, the editor of the Purple Book, um, the editor of the, the, the pediatric textbook with Claudia Onrig, the first and I think second edition. Um, he's got a tremendous amount of published papers um, and journals, et cetera. And um, he was, in, he was the president of the Gonset club at the time, at the time, I think he was the president. And I was a freshman and we were all hanging out in the quad at LACC and heard about MPI motion palpation Institute. I don't know if you guys, if the younger guys know what that is, but motion palpation Institute was a big thing. And it was all about end feel motion and creating mobility where joints were fixated. Um, and um, LACC had a big MPI following and, I think Faye was from California. He ran the whole thing and he started it and he was local. I think he was somewhere in Los Angeles. And so it was a big thing at, at Los Angeles College of Chiropractic. And we were sitting around and Greg Plogger had a crowd of people around talking a little bit. You know, they were just BSing about chiropractic and philosophy. And I'm listening. And I said, So what do you think about? And our, oh, our school had a bunch of clubs. So we taught diversified at LACC, but we had all kinds of clubs back then. You had an SOT club, you had an MPI club, you had a Gonset club, you had, you name it, we had a club. They weren't about destroying the clubs just yet. They started to, but not that much. And uh, and I said, so, hey, you know, I don't really know who Greg was. I'm like, so what do you think about uh, MPI? He goes, MPI? He goes, why don't you show off at the Gonset club on Thursday night and, real some, and learn some real chiropractic? And I said, okay, <laughs> me and my buddy, my roommate at the time, uh, actually it wasn't my roommate at my time, but it was my friend. And uh, we went to the concert club on Thursday night and they were teaching listings and, you know, and it was a PRS and the bone did this and a PRI and it did this and it was positioned this way and you list it this way. And it just made so much sense to me, especially compared to pushing up and down on the spine for end feel to determine if the bone is moving or not. Um, you know, it was first term, second term in school. So once I saw the PRS and PRI and all that, I'm like, that makes sense. And I was in, I was hooked on Gonstead. Next thing you know, I'm in the club all the time. I became president at one point, I think at the end of my career there at the school. And there you go. Yeah, so I went to LACC about 10 years after you when they were trying to destroy the clubs. Okay, <laughs> poor guy. Did and, you still have to do, wait, did you still have to do breast exams and uh, oh, yeah. exams? Oh, yes. yes. Online patients, absolutely. Because that's <laughs> tragic. Yes, I know. And, oh. and the thing that's so funny is that they made you have to do all those types of exams. If you ever did one, you'd end up in jail. That's what my friend's argument was. He said, if I do this to a patient, they're going to sue me and they should. <laughs> so yeah, that pretty much was where it was at. Um, but you know, it's the same thing for me. I got to the club and that very first day they started doing listings and same kind of thing with my mind. I thought, how am I supposed to know where the bone needs to go if I don't know where it went? So I got to have some idea of normal, how it deviated from normal and how to get it back to normal. That's just like, it seemed basic and obvious to me. Yeah. Yeah, and it is, and it's very basic and obvious. Yeah, it's it's simple but complicated. Yeah, uh, it's, it's simple to think about. It's simple to talk about. It can be difficult to do sometimes, yeah. especially when the X-ray tells you it's a PRS and you don't get them better until you set it as a PLI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then there's that. <laughs> the fact that sometimes our knowledge is is deceiving us. And that's when Constant turns around and said. No, no, that's not a PRS. That's a PLI. Don't you see it? And everybody goes, no. And he goes, well, that's what it is. Well, that's what it is. wrong. <laughs> yep. So. All right. So today I've got a bunch of questions, um, listeners and different things people struggle with. And so I thought I'll just, I'll read the question and then we'll, I guess, chat it out. You can 
offer yours and I'm not going to leave you out on a limb. So I'll, uh, I'll opine <laughs> if I have it, and we'll just see. Um, so let's see, what's the first one? Okay. Can you explain a little bit about the sympathetic parasympathetic balance, particularly if we have a thoracic subluxation, for example, is that always going to decrease sympathetic output or could it cause an increase in sympathetic tone? And how should we address that? Wow. I didn't know I was going to get quizzed. So <laughs> the way I always looked at it, which is a little bit the opposite. I always look at it as the parasympathetics calm the body down and the sympathetics speed the body up. And if you have a subluxation, you're going to interfere with that. So if you want to speed the body up, you remove subluxations in the, in the, in the sympathetics. And if you want to slow it down, you remove subluxations in the parasympathetics. Um, so there you go. So somebody subluxated like an ADD kid, you know, we're looking in parasympathetics because we want to calm them down. So by adjusting them in the parasympathetics, we slow the system down because what we're really doing is putting it back into balance. Um, so the question about in the, in the sympathetics, um, it were in the thoracic spine, can it go both ways? Well, it can. Um, and, and I, and I'm not sure if the reason that I believe it can is what fits the Gonstead thought process, but we learned in school that you can have facilitation as well as decreased nerve output. You can also have an increase or a facilitation or an over firing of the nerve. So you can have a sympathetic subluxation that's slowing the body down. But you can also have a sympathetic subluxation that's creating facilitation neurologically and overwhelming and speeding the body up. So that's my answer to that question. Um, I don't know uh, what, how you think about it or what you think. I guess what, the one I think about a lot of times is that anything is possible, but I try to think in terms of what's most likely. Right. Okay. So the thoracic subluxation, it's most likely going to decrease your ability it's, it's going to turn off your go so if you if you adjust it you're going to get more go well that that's good right but it would be the opposite um but it's going to be rare and when it does happen one adjustment could be all it takes to know that it's doing the opposite right right and adapt to it so i think by playing the odds and playing to what it's most likely to do you're going to get the right answer most of the time and if it is wrong, it should be very quick and easy to figure out that that did that did the opposite of what I wanted. I should do the opposite of what I just did right. and try that out. And you'll probably get what you're looking for. And I think the reason why it happens that when you get that opposite is because you're getting a facilitated neurological reaction as opposed to a decrease in neurological flow. Yes. And yeah. That, and we're, that's what's yeah. It's and, the complexity of the nervous system coming back to bite us again. Yes. Yep. 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 Uh, Okay, next question. All right. If you have a posterior sacrum on the side of a short leg and you use a heel lift, how will lifting that side affect the sacrum? Will it drive it more posterior or will it correct it and take it an anterior? Well, it should correct it and take it an anterior. Yeah, I would think ideally. Um, um, I was trying to think. If you have, I, I think this, this is a scenario I think I've encountered <laughs> where if the ilium is not that misaligned, but you have a posterior sacrum, so you've got like say a PR five or six, but really your ilium listings are like one at one, like a PI one, IN one, and you put a lift in there. I have seen that sometimes want to drive the sacrum further posterior, but most of the time when that happens, it's a posterior sacrum. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's already posterior. So if you just adjust it forward, then the lift is still going to benefit you. So I don't think the left is ever going to hurt it. It just is going to, it might exaggerate the subluxation that's already there if you correct the subluxation. And I guess that's kind of where we probably should get into how do you really use heel lifts? Right. Well, Primarily, they're for, they're for stabilizing something that's unstable. They're not really a correction per se. Exactly. And and and, and one of the things, though, that, that I found also with heels, you know what? I don't use a lot of heel lifts um, it, it, for, for a few reasons. One is... I think that basically we get people better without them and, and I find that they stabilize, you know, when you're specific and you're moving the bone the right way, 
people's spines, they get corrected, they feel better, they stabilize. There's been a million times I'm looking at the x-ray, I tell the patient, we're probably getting a heel lift, but we're going to see how it goes. And then I never give them the lift. And they feel the best they felt forever, and it's lasting, and it's staying, and they don't keep needing to be readjusted, and, and they're doing quite well. Um, but yeah, like you said, though, it's for stabilization. Then you got that patient who they keep having a problem, keep having a problem. You put in that lift, and, and everything stabilizes. One of the other things that I, that I find with the problem with the lift sometimes is that if their spine is so fixated or arthritic, uh, um, a lot of scar tissue, um, there you got to be flexible to put that lift in. Otherwise, you just end up laterally shifting the pelvis to one side, and that can create other problems up above. You follow me? So sometimes yeah. you take a re-X-ray of somebody with a lift in. And instead of things looking better, they end up with this rotated pelvis and this translated pelvis. And it's because they're so fixated that they couldn't compensate properly to the lift. And, uh, yeah. When, uh, when I started, I actually was doing a lot of lifts when I first started. And I think the reason why, there were some people in my town who were using lifts and they were doing it incorrectly and they were creating problems out of thin air. So I was bringing people in, x-raying them correcting their lift, making them better. So I kind of built my practice on lifts. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Yeah. That's how it started. I don't, I don't do it nearly as much anymore, but it did give me the opportunity to get fairly, to get some experience with how it was going and to get some ideas of things. The main time I use it now is a lot of times I see people who have had knee replacement or hip replacement and they have an artificial short leg. And right, right. not only do they need a lift, but they probably need a big one. And I have found that I don't just dive right. Like I don't, I would never just give somebody a seven millimeter lift. That would be crazy. Right, so right. I start with small amounts and I work them up, just like you said, because their body's been compensating and you mess up, you give them that much that fast, they can't adapt to it. So I start with, I, I pretty much start everybody with a three. And then from there, if I need to go up, up. yeah, I don't that much anymore. Just once in a while, it's usually those cases. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. You definitely got to start small. You got to go slow. And um, the, one of the biggest things that you see, especially that coming from the medics is, they put it on short leg and they don't even look at the, at the, at the shape of the curve, you know, and, and they're giving a, um, a lift on a concave side, um, uh, you know, and it's just, and it just makes the scoliosis worse, you know, yeah. raising that leg up on that, on that side. And that's just not good. Or the biomechanics, it's, it's a pathomechanical biomechanics. And instead of the spinous process rotating to the concavity or the body rotating the opposite way, it, it, it it's rotated the wrong way and you give them that lift and you make that rotation of that fifth lumbar worse and they end up creating other problems. Yes. There was lots of that. Um, the other one is they like to measure it with them seated and they just like use a tape measure and measure their femur down to all the way to the lateral malleolus. And then they give them a lift. And sometimes they would give people these lifts that were like two inches high. Well, that's going to mess them up big time. So totally. Yeah, yeah, I, doing I, I didn't even know they really did it that way. I thought it was a little archaic too, but apparently people are still learning that, teaching it and doing it. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's not very accurate. <laughs> um, okay. Is there a scenario where you would adjust the sacrum and the ilium on the same visit? Same side even. Is there a scenario where I would address the sacrum? Like, let's say that you had a PIIN with a posterior rotated sacrum. Right. Well, typically I would take the sacrum. I would do. Um, and, uh, but would I set that ilium? You know what? I'm going to be honest. <laughs> if that joint was really fixating and I was not getting the kind of change I wanted or, uh, or the movement that I wanted on that sacrum, I might adjust that ilium. I know it's supposed to make it worse and you're making the, 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 the subluxation worse, but like we talked about earlier, right? There's always exceptions. Mm -hmm. So, um, there has been times, um, especially if they have a symptomatology like groin pain, um, where I would set that ilium. Now, would I do it on the same visit? Probably not. Probably not, but I would, but there's definitely times where I would set that LEM on the, on the posteriorly rotated side of the sacrum. Yeah. That's what I would say too, because there's times when you know, you need to move that sacrum, but when you go to adjust it, it's like you're hitting a wall yep. and it's because the LEM misalignment's not giving you anywhere to go. 
Yes. So you move the ilium, get that thing open, and then you just you ride the sacrum from then on. Right, right. And and you know what? I I know chiropractors who, will, who were told you should never do this, but I had some old time guys whisper in my ear, maybe, you know, that like a lot of times, like if you can't get an atlas, you could set C2 on the opposite side to set the foundation under it. Huh. And, and, you know, I, you know, it's like, well, are you really supposed to do that? Well, I don't know if the book says it, but when a guy has been practicing 50 years and has said and has adjusted fractured odontoid processes back into place, I'll listen. Yeah, maybe it's true. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's, that was, uh, Richard Gall told me that a long, long time ago. I don't know if you know who he is. You probably oh, yeah. You really, really can't be at LACC, do Gonstead and not know, and not have some interaction with Dr. Gall. Right. So, yeah. So he talked about setting that, like if it's a, you know, if you can't get the Atlas on the right, set C2 under it on the left, the other way. So. Yeah. Now, now people are going to have all these bad habits who listen to this talking and be like, who the hell did that? <laughs> We're going to come up and be like, there's no rules whatsoever. Just do whatever you want. <laughs> told you to do that, damn it. <laughs> um, okay. An EX, I'm, I'm kind of reading this as I'm saying it to you, trying to make sense of it. An EX ilium on the side of posterior sacrum. Okay. Will the EX adjustment alone solve this problem or do you need to set the sacrum too? Okay. So that's another one. So I would ask it this way. If you adjust an EX ilium, if the sacrum is also rotated posterior, is that going to be a harder adjustment or an easier adjustment than if, there, if the sacral listing is on the opposite side? It's going to be a harder adjustment. That's what I would say too, yeah. I yeah. think that's the question they're asking is that when you go to do that EX pull, but you got the sacrum posterior on the same side, it's, this is where the art comes in. It's a matter of you've got to catch that sacrum right. So you're setting the ilium into the sacrum. The two things got to meet right. And you got to make sure you don't rotate that pelvis, that, 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 that you're really setting that ilium and that you're stabilizing the spine. Because then you're just going to twist everything around. Yeah, and that might be the biggest issue because it seems like there's a – I see a lot of that, – that particular yeah, job. The motorcycle kicked the leg creating right. just a spinning of that pelvis and you didn't really do anything. Right. Yeah. You might get a cavitation or something, but you don't even know where from. It could be a lumbar. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so then we get kind of get back to, so on the, on the, on any pull move, but especially an ilium pull move, one of the big keys then is making sure that you have proper stabilization because when you're bringing that ilium into the sacrum, you can't afford to have that sacrum move. It's got to stay put. You have to have something stay put. Right, right. Yeah. set in. But if you're pulling and the sacrum's moving, then it's a stabilization problem and it's not going to come in. But so I think really that's kind of the question is you don't need to do the EX pull and then set the sacrum. You just need to stabilize the sacrum so that the EX comes into it and they fix all at once. Right. And then one of the things that, that was a little different that we learned, because I learned from the the Bay Area guys where they're their kick was kind of like up the spine, kind of not, not down. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. That's how I do it. Yeah. 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 It's kind of like, which is different than I think how uh, Dr. Cox and, and, and the seminar guys teach it. Um, I know you're not saying your motorcycle kick up, obviously you're not doing that. You're still stable, but it's up kind of like parallel with the table, I guess is the best way. Yeah, to do it. You're using adductor muscles instead of extensor muscles. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is great because then there's like no rotation and the bone still moves. Yeah, yeah. And the, what the patient feels is like this st snugness, which also helps them to relax. Right. That's what I find about doing it the other way is that they kind of feel like you're leaving them and they sometimes tense up in response to that. And I like just having it, them feel snug and just letting go. Right. Same thing with the finger push. Mm -hmm. versus pulling it, we kind of push it. That's how I was taught it. Um, when I, when, when, um, again, the Bay area guys, you know, they, with the finger push and I remember calling it a finger push as opposed to a pull. Yeah. Actually, even just that terminology helped me a lot when yeah. I was learning and I was like, pull. So I'm trying to pull things. And when they said finger push, I was like, oh, that's the imagery I need. I can do that. Right. 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 Yep. And it just moves nice right there. If you need to adjust Atlas on the knee chest table but the listing is ASRA or ASLA, how do you do that? 
Great. Well, I cheat, and this is what I do. <laughs> I, that, that is the best answer. <laughs> listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to sit and I don't. I'm not going to just repeat that the, what everybody says they do, and then you watch them and they do something completely different. I'm going to tell you what I do. That's why I wanted to have this conversation with you. <laughs> I knew that's what I would get. <laughs> so first of all, you know what I do? I have a, uh, I lie him on the pelvic bench, not on the knee chest table. And I put him sideways and I use the pillow um, from the knee chest table as the stabilization, not the knee chest table, from the pelvic bench. And I have like a thicker pillow and I have a thinner pillow that came with one of the sets and it's like two inches and it just doesn't have that much foaminess to it. It's kind of a lot. It's more like a feather pillow versus a foam pillow, just the way it is, the way it's made. And I put them side posture on the pelvic bench and that's how I set it instead of the knee chest. And it sets beautiful and they can completely relax because they're laid, you know, their whole body is on their side versus just cranking their head around with their, you know, with their arm through the table kind of. That makes sense. Did I explain that right? Yes, I think maybe what this person's having trouble with is the is the fact that when you rotate one way, you're getting one kind of rotation, but then if you have to adjust for correct to correct the rotation going the opposite direction, your line really, of drive. You, you got to look at your line of drive. You know yeah. where where are you where are you lining up on that on that atlas? When you look at that X-ray and you see that rotation, you see how that person's head is turned. Where are you standing or where are you leaning over them? Where is your, if you had a tie on, where's your tie dropping down on the person? Is that going to push it more P, um, uh, posterior to anterior, or is it going to push it more anterior to posterior? Are you going to get that rotation out that way? Does that yeah. make sense? Yep. Yep. That's for me, that was the trick with it. And in all honesty, I don't really adjust atlas that way very often like maybe three four five times a year uh, i mostly do it all in the chair but if i had to do it that way i do just kind of visualize where's the bone as they're laying down where's it going where do i need it to go and it's just a lot of three-dimensional visioning to make sure that i'm accounting for vectors but there's a way to do it you just got to think and make sure you're accounting for all the vectors and, and that's why one of the most important things you can do is have your x-rays in front of you when you take, when you're, when you're making your adjustments. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. you know, going by a listing doesn't really do much. And to me feel I'm more of a static palpation guy than more than anything. Um, you know, I know the motion, the motion, the motion, but I think motion's hard to, you know, I'm about my break, my swelling, my tenderness um, and the x-ray. Yes. I motion palpate, but, Sometimes I'm just like, do I really feel it? I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I'm still going, is that really stuck? You know, I don't know. Maybe the, maybe everybody else is just better at it than I am. But I, but I know when it's tender, it's tender. And I know I could feel the edema and I know I can see the x-ray and I know I see the break with the meter. And, uh, and even sometimes, and, and, and I could see that listing on that film and where the wedge starts and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's what you get with experience is that as the pieces start falling in place, you kind of go, I see where this is going and it all makes sense. So you get quicker about it. So then it would look like maybe you're not putting the time in, but in reality, you're getting all the information and it's really what you were ex expecting. And yeah. 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 I'm not telling people don't motion palpate. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just, you know. <laughs> You're right. There's times when you're like, well, am I really feeling that? Or is this just confirmation bias? Because I've already decided that's what I'm going to do. Well, <laughs> you have to have that conversation with yourself. And, and, you know, and that's the thing. And I always wonder, you know, I, I wish I saw Gonstead adjust and stuff because, you know, I, I, when he's seen somebody two, three times a day, I bet you that the minute they walk into that room, he's already decided if he's setting that six, that six thoracic again, or he's not. You know, I, I have a lot of patients where I know I'm either going to adjust them that day or I'm not going to adjust them. But if I'm going to adjust them, I know I'm going to set that fifth lumbar. And if the fifth lumbar doesn't have anything, then I'm leaving everything else alone, even if it's there. Like, I kind of have a plan sometimes. I don't yeah. know if that's experience um, or, or, 
or, or like you said, you know, you, 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 you're taking it in so quickly that you just think you think you're, you, you innately know what to do, but really you didn't innately know what to do. You just went through a whole bunch of steps, but you didn't even realize you did it. Yeah. That's what I've been. I've been thinking about that more and more because I have students asking me questions and the more I think about it, I'm like, I did do it. It's just that I picked up the answer so quick. I started thinking, I, I think that's what happens is that you, you anticipate where it's going to go. And when you get the first clue that that's where it's going to go, then you already know that's where it's going to go. And it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like an athlete who's played a sport and they've seen plays a billion times. And, and when the first thing starts, they go, I see where this play is going. Um, I played in a game one time with a guy who played linebacker who was so fast. He would call out the plays like shortly after the quarterback said, hike, he's yelling to the defense, what play they're running. And everybody said, how do you do that? And he's like, I just see it. And you're like, okay, well, it looks like you have ESP, but yeah. whatever. It's like, it's like Wayne Gretzky, right? He, he, yeah. he, you know, be where the puck is going to be, not where it is. Yeah. You know, but there's things that you learn. There's little, there's little tips that you hear. There's things out there like, you know, a lot of guys, when we talk about the break with the meter and, you know, we're talking about analyzing and finding the spot. Right. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, there's a saying that, that, that a lot of guys will say, and they'll say that the meter isn't to tell you where it's to tell you when, mm -hmm. which is quite interesting. Cause if you talk to some of the guys who've really done some extensive studying on the, on the meter, really studied it, they'll tell you that, you know, there's a lot, obviously we know there's a lot of reasons for temperature changes and you can have a, a break at T6 and the subluxations at T8. Now, what do you do? Um, and, and again, one more thing that you're going to, you're going to wish you never interviewed me <laughs> I'm breaking all the rules here, but it's something to think about. So like, I'll, I'll have a problem where I see the break at like, that's an example at T6, but the swelling, the edema, the tenderness, the way the x-ray looks, the misalignment, the fixation is all at T8, but the break is definitely at T6. There's nothing at T8. And I think that's a perfect example of when to adjust, not necessarily where to adjust. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think you're right. Cause that is how I've, how I try to view it. It's so tempting to make the, to let the scope tell you where to adjust, but you're right. There's times like, say you get a new patient and they've already been to three or four different chiropractors and they've got an original problem, but now they've got three layered problems on top of that. Basically you scope them and what the scope tells you is where they need to be adjusted today. And then you correct that. And when they come in the next time, it's almost guaranteed to tell you somewhere else because that's where they need to be adjusted that day. And it's a when thing more than a where thing, but right. it can look the same and get confusing. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 um, you know, that was, that was a mind opener for me. It's like, you know, when not where, I mean, where, where is great when where matches up, it's beautiful. When, when everything shows up in one spot, it's, it's perfect. But when, when some of the, the signs are all over the place, it makes it, it makes it tough. And then sometimes you got to just, you know, go with your biggest hunch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and my view of the whole breaking the rules thing, I was in a band one time with a guy who was a really great bass player and he could play anything. Well, whenever he, we, the group would get new music, he would put the sheet music in front of them like a good boy and he'd play the, the music. And he told me one time, he said, I play it. Um, I play it off the sheet exactly the way the sheet says, and I won't, won't change anything until I know it inside, backwards, forwards, inside, outside. He said, and then I will wad that piece of paper up. I'll throw it away and then I'll really play it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, that's kind of how I see it is that when you're starting out, you need that sheet music. You got to follow the rules. You got to do exactly what they tell you to do. And then as you gain more ability and more talent, more everything, then you can start to put the sheet music to the side and you know when you can improvise and when you never want to. And those 100%. I agree with you a hundred percent, but then there's sometimes the opposite where you're sitting there and you can't figure the patient out because you've gone on so many different little tangents and you go, wait a second. And you got to go back to your basics and just go, okay, where's the edema? Where's the tenderness? Where's the break? Where does it match up? What does the film look like? Okay. That's what I'm going to do. And, and, and I found that sometimes too, where it's, you know, where it's almost like, like I'll have an, well, I'll, I'll have a new patient in front of me and I'm trying to figure out where the break is, where the edema is, where the, the, and then sometimes I have to get 
almost mechanistic and just, okay, it's here, here, and here. Forget what they're saying. Forget what it looks like. Just it's this, this, and this. It's this, this, and this. It's this, this, and this. Add them up. That's the subluxation. All five criteria are here or all five criteria are here. And, and, and that's, but that I guess falls into the more I think about it of find it and accept where you find it. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the beauty of the system is that whenever you do get lost, when you do get overwhelmed, which when you're first starting out is going to happen more often than not. But even now there's times with a patient that you just kind of go, okay, go back to the root and just start the system at the beginning. And if you just go back to the, the roots of the system, you'll get, you'll get figured out and get back where you need to be. Um, I've, I have a question coming up, I believe about x-rays, but I feel the same way about x-rays. Sometimes actually I find a lot of times I look at x-rays and my initial impression is that I'm overwhelmed. So I've learned to just let myself be overwhelmed and just stare at it for about 10 seconds and just kind of take in the general appearance of it. And then I go, okay, read it in the way you'd mark it. Where are the femur heights? Where are the ilium? Where's the ischium? What's the sacrum doing? And then just start working your way through it and don't try to jump ahead to the answer because it'll mess you up. Just yeah. work through the system and then let the system lead you to the answer. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know what? And, and for the guys that are in practice and the, the worst is the people who, who really it's about their symptoms over and over and over every time they come in. It's hard because they can wear you down, man, patients like that. And before you know it, you're chasing symptoms around their spine. And it's the worst thing you can ever do is chase the symptom, but it can happen in those patients who are like symptom, 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 symptom. And then you got to do what you just said. And you got to go back to the root and almost ignore what they're saying because you're not getting them better anyway, because you're chasing symptoms now, instead of following the basics, you go back to doing the basics and then you adjust where you think you need to adjust. And lo and behold, they'll get better if you stick to it. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, so it goes both ways, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the trick of the whole thing is that it's, I remember when I was first starting, I suddenly had this vision and I st- started seeing people as combination locks. And I was like, there is a, there is a combination that is correct. And it's made up of a bunch of different numbers and I have no idea what they are. <laughs> and I've yeah. got to figure out what they are. It's true. That's the hardest part too. Sometimes when you know the problem is coming from the spine and that patient is really, really hurting and you know, and sometimes it's just tough to get them to put the time in until you figure it out. That's the hard, that that's a hard one. I think for got for new, new practitioners, you know, and that's where the confidence comes in. You got to be confident enough in what you're doing that, that, that when you get that patient that's really having a hard time and they're at their wits end and, and because they spent the last seven months in agony going to everybody else and they came to you, you know, when they're on the verge of, of, of surgery, you know, and yeah, you can save a lot of those people, but sometimes you need the time to, to, to figure it out. And, um, I guess that's the beauty of the system is that at least we have a system to figure it out. We're not just throwing stuff at the patient. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, when I was a, in clinic at LACC, I had a patient who was probably about 20, 21. His lateral x-ray, his spine was as straight as an arrow, no curves whatsoever. And his pelvis was tucked under with a really severe posterior pelvic tilt. And my clinician wanted to send him off for surgery. And I convinced him to let me at least have a shot at it. But I knew nothing. <laughs> and the x-ray that I had came from our our x-ray lab where they insisted on x-raying him laying down. They would not take a standing x-ray. So, but knowing nothing, I worked and I worked and I tried to figure things out, but I lacked the knowledge and I lacked the experience and I lacked the adjusting ability and ultimately failed him entirely and probably for more than one reason. And for me, that became a driver that to this day, like I'm telling you right now, I still think of this kid. Um, And I think, man, I wish I could have helped that kid. And the fact that I didn't know how just drove me up a wall and it became major fuel for, I got to find answers to these questions. Yeah. Um, however, it, whatever it takes. Was he in a lot of pain? Was he like a, a real mess? Oh, yeah. He was in agony. Yeah. He could, as a 20 year old kid, he basically had no life. He couldn't walk without pain. Couldn't stand, um, really couldn't engage in anything. Um, couldn't get him to another guy, like a field guy. We were trying, but of course, um, 
basically LACC made it clear that if we referred him to like Dr. Gold, that we were going to get thrown out. So, so let's we, get surgery instead of going to somebody who's been in practice for 50 years. Yeah. And that's I look at him and go, Oh, it's this bone right here. Lay down, you know? Yeah. Cause I had another girl in my class who um, was in a car accident right before we started school and had severe torticollis. So her chin was pinned to her shoulder for the whole three years we went through school. She saw numerous chiropractors. Nobody helped her right towards the end. Somebody finally convinced her to go see Dr. Goal. I think he adjusted her three to five times. And in her graduation photo, she's looking straight ahead. Wow. So it's like, yeah, what can happen when you see the right person? Did she but, become a NASA doctor? Um, you know, I'm not sure that she ever even practiced. <laughs> that right. seems to be part of the part of the LACC legacy is that like half the people never practice. But um, I don't think she ever practiced, but she um, she definitely had a lot of respect for it. It was like definitely there is not all chiropractors are the same. And so, yeah. And what was funny is everybody, as you can imagine, was messing with her neck, particularly her atlas and her C2. It was a T3. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's, um, it's, 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 I don't know. It, it, it's a shame that, that the schools are trying to tell everybody that it's all the same and all you got to do is pop the back and create motion and, do all this other stuff when, when, you know, at least when we went to school, you know, there was clubs and there was a belief system. And at least we argued about what technique was better to get the best results. Now we don't even discuss technique from what I'm understanding. They don't even talk about technique. They just talk about, I don't know what they talk about. I don't, I don't know what the argument is, you know, but we at least would argue that, no, the best thing is to, Motion palpate. No, the best thing is God's. No, the best thing is SOT. At least we talked about different methods that had a place to start and a place to end. And the yeah. school would do anything they could to destroy that and just turn it into mobilize the joint, mobilize the joint. Nowadays, I don't even think kids know there's a difference between techniques. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I know like most people in my class, but I'll even speak for myself there are a lot of named techniques that I know very little about because we weren't taught any named techniques. It was just take this piece of that technique and this piece of that technique and apply the maneuver, but not really understanding that um, it wasn't taught until I graduated that I started understanding that different techniques had different philosophies of what they were trying to do. I was like, well, that seems kind of obvious now, but never occurred to me because nobody ever talked about that. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess where you were, it was probably worse than, than when I was there. That 10 years was a big gap. Yeah, I, a lot, a lot. When I first, when we first started the Gone State Club, we were small, so that would have been probably around 1997, um, and they left us alone because it was small. But by 1998, they they took away our room, they threatened to throw all of our stuff in the garbage, and they were, and then even now, they're not even allowed on campus really. So it, it's definitely changed, and it, I never understood that aspect. Like, why would you be antagonistic? towards anything in chiropractic. Like, I don't care what technique people use, just trying to be the best you can be. So I don't understand really being antagonistic towards it, but it's just what it's become, I guess. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's so messed up. What? Yeah, there, there's still techniques out there that I think are very valuable that I would send somebody to because my approach was always, this is what I do and this is what I do well. So like in my town, when I came back, I made friends with a physical therapist because even though I knew she was allowed to manipulate, I went to her and basically said, look, I don't do any of these exercises and stuff. I'm not stepping on your toes because I don't do that and I don't want to do that. So if I have somebody who needs it, I'll send it to you. And then she kind of was like, you know, I'm allowed to manipulate and do stuff, but I don't know how to do it and I don't want to do it. So I'll send it to you. So we worked great together. And it was like, why do we need to be antagonistic? I just made it clear that I do one thing and it's the one thing I do and I'm going to do it the very best I can. And I don't want to water it down by trying to be, be everything to everybody. That's not necessary. Listen, you know, I've been saying this forever and and I say it to this day. The only people that have a problem with the chiropractic philosophy, the term subluxation and name techniques are the schools, not the medical doctors, not the hospital administrators, not the nurses, not the physical therapists. They don't have a problem with it at all. It makes perfect sense to them. It's like, it's, it's, it's absurd that the schools have a problem with something that they say is holding us back when I got friends, you know, personal friends that are medical doctors and I talk to them about what we do and the bone and the this and that. And they go, that's pretty cool. That makes that makes sense. Sense. You know, it's ridiculous. 
and it's yeah. and it's a shame and it's sad that that these freaking colleges are just putting out horrible chiropractors who are told that you don't need to take an x-ray who don't even who've never heard the name Gonstead or Desjardins or or Thompson like you said you know and, and or Harrison or any of these guys you know who are doing stuff and 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 Fred Barge and it, it, it it's just it's just too bad and like you said how can you sit there and say something like Gonstead so a guy who who had not only people travel from all over the world to go see him. And it wasn't because they were taking a vacation in Mount Horror, Wisconsin. Because if you ever been there, which I know you have, but people looking may not have, there's not a whole lot going on there. There wasn't something going on in the 70s. You know, know, it's not like, oh, I'm visiting from Florida. I need an adjustment. And the chiropractor says, oh, I have people who come from as far away as Florida to see me. No, in Gonstead's world, they were coming to see Gonstead. And, and, and how these schools can sit there, whether or not the reasons he said he was doing what he thought he was doing was or wasn't true with the science that we know today, although most of it was true, um, we still find to be true. Uh, but even if it wasn't, whatever he was doing got a lot of sick people well. And the fact that you would try to stop that for mediocrity is just mind-boggling to me and why the students put up with it is disgusting and and you know i, I was talking to a a student we were trying to get a gonset club going or some gonset work going up at new york chiropractic college and her father is a very 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 principled de chiropractor okay. i mean this guy is all about innate and adjustment and the power that made the body heals the body and his daughter went to nycc because it was New York and he's from New York and he probably faded, you know, she was born in, in home and all that stuff. And, and I called her to talk a little bit about the Gonset club. And he was so excited that his daughter might get into this. And it was near the end of her last couple terms. So she wasn't really too enthusiastic. And I get that. Um, but she was just like, well, who is, I don't really know. Like I, I never really heard of Gonstead. What, what is that? You know? And then she was like, um, she goes, Oh yeah, we're, yeah, we have the Gonstead, we have the teachers, we have a Gonstead thing on campus, like, but we don't use the scope and we're told that we should never x-ray unless we think that the person has a pathology and x-rays are bad and listings aren't, you know, bad and all this stuff. I, it just blew me away. And, um, I don't know. Yeah. I was, uh, I just had a conversation this morning with a dentist and I said to him, can you imagine people graduating from dental school and, and a lot of them, not just some of them, but a lot of them being like, you know, I don't really know how to do a filling and I'm not really sure how to place a crown and um, root canals are just out of my realm altogether. And then having debates about whether or not cavities even exist. I was like, that's chiropractic school. (laughs) It's crazy. And, and I don't know, maybe, you know, but I would imagine that medicine has techniques named after the people who, you know, I'm sure there are surgical techniques named after the guy who came up with the way of tying that knot or, yes, no. or breaking open that chest in a certain yeah. way, you know. My wife has dental tools named after the person who invented the tool. So if they've got tools named after people, yeah, there's definitely techniques. Yeah, so why why is it bad for us to have that? Like, I don't get it. I, I don't understand the rationale behind it. Yeah, it's a totally different – it's like we're held to a totally different standard. It's just like with the research. We're talking about this all the time, too, with the research that we if you go to Wikipedia and look up chiropractic in the very first sentence, it says that we are pseudoscientific. And yet we have this enormous body of research, peer reviewed research. And yet you've got doctors prescribing drugs that have never even been studied. But somehow they're the pinnacle of science. Yeah, it makes no sense. You know, and I, and I say this all the time, um, you know, even if what we think we're doing we find out that we're not like, let's just say that that PI LEM really isn't PI. Let's just say it's not, let's just say it's really not PI or really not PIIN. But the bottom line is if I look at what I quote unquote, according to the critic, if I look at what I'm looking at and it's not what I think it is and I do the opposite, the person gets sick. So there's gotta be something there. 
So maybe it's not really PI, but maybe what looks like a PI means something else that means to still adjust it the same freaking way because that's the only way that they get better. So, so science doesn't mean, you know, science means figure out, we know what, we know Gonstead works, period. It works. It works, it works, it works, it works. So, man, and if, and if the researchers are saying, well, you're not really doing what you think you're doing, well, then figure out what I'm doing because when I adjust it as a PRI instead of a PRS, they don't get better. So I'm doing something. And, it, yeah. and if it's not what I think I am, that's fine. I'm okay with it not being what I think I'm doing, but, but the actual act of what I am doing is still getting them better. And that's what we don't do in chiropractic. Instead, we throw the whole thing out. We don't turn around and go, how did this guy grow to have, you know, two, 3,000 people a week come in, people in comas, people in wheelchairs, people on gurneys, people with all kinds of problems get well and heal instead of sitting there and saying, well, that ilium really doesn't go PI. Well, who cares? Who cares? Let's figure out, well, whatever it is doing that looks like what I'm calling a PI by setting it in the opposite direction seems to get this person well. So let's, okay, it doesn't really go PI. Well, whatever it does, what I'm doing to it is working. So why don't we figure out why it's working Yeah. instead of just saying it doesn't exist? Yeah, because if we both stopped being specific and just started popping our patients at random, they wouldn't get better. Our reputation would go down the toilet, and that's what would happen. Exactly. So it does matter. It obviously matters. It's just, yeah. How do we figure out how to explain it? Because you're right. Even if it's not PI, if if it, if I adjust it this way when it looks like that and it works, then you tell me why it works when it looks like that. Like right. there's still something there. And isn't that the job of the researcher? If I take this drug and I think that the reason why it healed your liver was because of this, this, and this. And that, and we find out, although that's crazy, that's not why that works. You know, uh, 50 years later, we go, that's not why that works. So does that mean we get rid of the drug? And we say, well, then throw out the drug? No, we say, well, this is why it worked. But it still worked. And by knowing that, we probably can use it even better. Exactly. So I have no problem with finding out that a PRS really isn't a PRS. Yeah, it doesn't I just matter. want to know, but when I adjust it the way I see it, as a PRS, that person gets well. And if I don't do it the way I see it, they don't get well. I don't care why you figure it out. Tell me and I'll start calling it what you want me to, you know, whatever. But the the bottom line is it still gets the person well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just explaining to somebody this last week with adjusting something. And I said, well, I know when it feels like this. And he's like, well, what are you feeling? Well, I don't know. He's like, well, what does it feel like? I can't tell you. <laughs> I just know it when I feel it. <laughs> and when it feels that way, it'll work. So does that mean that we forget about it and we throw it out? Because, well, nobody can really feel that because only you can feel it. So it doesn't work. Right. Because nobody else can verify that I felt what I felt. So it doesn't work. It, it works. So yeah. Exactly. Why don't we get scientific about it and try to figure out how we can all figure out what you felt and then we could teach. Once we yeah. figure out what it was that you felt, and how you felt it, now we can actually teach that and make better chiropractors. Absolutely. Yep. That's what I felt all along is that if I could tell them what I was feeling for, if I come up with a better explanation, it would speed up the learning process. Because I think that's the whole key is that very few people I feel like are going to graduate. And even after three years of working really, really hard, they're still probably not going to be that good, which means you now have to enter practice being not that good. And if there's a way that we could speed up the process so they could go from knowing nothing to actually being halfway decent by the time they graduate, that's going to have huge implications for the whole profession. Right. But, but how do we do that when we say that subluxations don't exist? So because they don't exist, we're going to throw the whole concept out. And we're just going to start popping stuff. <laughs> and we're just going to start popping stuff. Why don't we try to figure out what these chiropractors were doing that did believe in a subluxation? or it did say it made a difference. And, and let's figure out what that was then. Because, you know, like what you just said, you know, and, 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 and that's, the, that, that's the messed up part of it. I, I just don't, I, I, it never made sense to me then. It doesn't make sense to me now. But I guess when, when I was in school, at least you could argue about that. You know, the argument was motion palpation versus 
like MPI, Ed Cremata came to LACC and had a debate with Dr. Fay. I don't remember what his first name is. Hmm. Richard Fay, whatever, Fay. So MPI versus Gonstead. It okay. was a great debate. It was so great. And, <laughs> and, um, and it was in the auditorium. And, you know, all the school teachers and all that were all about MPI at the time. At least they were about some sort of chiropractic. And all those Gonstead guys were all about Gonstead and, and, and this and that. And, uh, you know, but we debated about chiropractic. You know, the argument was, well, don't, you know, static listing. You don't want to adjust off x-rays and blah, 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 blah. And of course you don't. But they, that was one of the rumors, like we adjusted off an x-ray. So anyway, so that was their big argument, you know. But the point is, we argued real chiropractic. Yeah. We argued about adjusting and moving a bone, and the principle was never really disputed. Might have been disputed about whether or not you can move the bone from right to left, or whether you're breaking up the fixation, or but but having an effect on the nervous system and disease processes that really wasn't questioned all that much. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I saw it. Yeah, and I especially in school, I felt like. People have different arguments and you kind of follow them and you are swayed by what you're swayed by. But the other thing about getting rid of everything off campus is that sometimes when you see things, you can't unsee what you've seen. And when you've seen something do something, you go, I have to make sense out of that because I just saw it. So I know it's real. It's not somebody telling me, oh, that's not real, which is what happens when they silence people. A lot of times with the Gonstead stuff, it turns into, oh, that's not real. Um, he adjusted seated because he had rheumatoid arthritis and he couldn't do it any other way. And they yeah. come up with all these different things rather than, like you said, discussing the principle of why would he do it seated? Biomechanics. Well, what do we know about biomechanics? Why would that be a better biomechanical way than another way? And then let's have a discussion about it. And by now, the way, if you ever look, and, and ironically, if you ever looked at um, um, – um, what was I going to say? I, I lost my train of thought. Uh, whatever. Sorry. I lost my train of thought. It'll come back to me though. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but a lot of times those things get silenced and then because they're science, we don't have the discussion. And I think it's good. Whatever opinion you come to, it should be informed by seeing both sides and having that discussion, not just having somebody silence it and poo poo it and then never let you even talk about it. And I think if that's going to happen anywhere, it should happen on a school campus and it should happen in the early stages of your learning. And instead it doesn't. And so that's kind of how we end up with people who have, like I felt for a long time when I first started that my knowledge was, had holes like Swiss cheese uh, because there were things that I just had never been exposed to. I just didn't, didn't know. I had to kind of figure it out on my own. Back to uh, uh, two thoughts. On, back to what you were just saying. Now I know what I was going to say. So let's just say, Let's just say the only way Gonstead could put his hand because of his rheumatoid arthritis and was adjust that patient was sitting in the chair. Let's just say that's why he did it. By doing that, he created a clinic that people came in from all over the world. So we should all want RA. <laughs> so we should all want RA, right. No, but we learned that putting our hands in the position of somebody with horrible RA Seems to be the best way to make an adjustment. What's wrong with that? Right? Don't they find drugs and make inventions by accident? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, let's say the accident was that I could only hold my hand one way, so I have to adjust everybody in the chair. But guess what? I don't see the guy lying on his back, twisting their head, have 3,000 people a week coming to his clinic from all over the world to get better without advertising and convincing them based on a philosophy that they should be there. He didn't have anything to do with philosophy. It was all about getting sick people well. That was his only philosophy. There was no talk of innate. There was no talk of, of the power that made the body heals the body. There was none of that. It was just, and it wasn't bring your entire family for five bucks that got hit to a thousand a week. Everybody in his clinic was sick. Yeah. And would wait as long as they had to, to see him. That's right. And, and that was my point. So if your hand was 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 stuck like that, well, everybody should do that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And then the other thing, when you talk about education, I never understood that. Why does colleges like Harvard and Yale can let a Nazi come on campus or let somebody who's who's a completely opposite way of thinking and all this stuff come on campus and speak? They say because they want those students to be 
um, uh, you know, exposed to all of this stuff. Okay, hang on a second. Our local politician is going to tell us how the parks are are now opened um, because or not opened anymore. So he saves us all from COVID. Oh, <laughs> we get that call every time, every day at five o'clock. This is Lou Petronacci to tell you that town of Huntington has closed 15,000 restaurants and bars so that you don't die tomorrow. Well, that's something to be proud of. <laughs> yeah. It's insane. But, but my point is, and then, and then you go to LACC and, oh, this guy can't come on campus. We're supposed to be adults and graduate students. Right. Aren't, we're not supposed to be afraid of education. We're supposed to be educating. We're supposed to let you see everything and you're supposed to be intelligent and make a choice. Yeah. You know, if the people can come to the right conclusion, then you haven't taught them the basics well enough. Exactly. Well, they would. Yeah. It's, it is pretty mind numbing. So, all right. Any more questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That was awesome. I enjoyed I enjoy the conversation. I, I hope some people learn some things through our, uh, our ranting. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> cool. I like it. Um, but yeah, these are all important things. But um, but yeah, we're get kind of digging into the technique just a little bit because it's true. People do get a little caught up in that. But thank you again for joining me. I, to- I very much appreciate it. Hey, it was it was totally fun. It was great. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Dr. Aslan once again for joining me. That was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer in the future, you can send them to the 1505 Club. That's T-H-E-1505-C-L-U-B at gmail.com. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and we'll see you again next time.